The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Hell is other people. Hell is other people. That's the famous line in the play called No Exit by Jean Paul Sartre. And the play is just very, it's, it, it's interesting. It's about hell, his vision of hell and what it would be like. And you get the idea from the line, it's about being with people. Uh, there are only three characters in the play, a man and two women, and they're sentenced to spend eternity in a room together. That's hell, according to this author. But there's one catch. They have no eyelids, and so they can never sleep at the beginning of the play, everyone is fairly happy. They um, are sharing stories about their wonderful lives, and they're filled with pretense and even lies about themselves. The man pretends that he was a hero in the revolution, when actually he was killed in a train wreck while deserting his comrades. The women have similar stories. But after a time, their true lives are revealed. Nothing can really be hidden. They, they end up coming clean about who they are. They're fully known by each other. And the moral of the play is this. You are your life and nothing else. You are your life and that's all. Now, Sartre was not a Christian. His vision of of hell is unbiblical. But it does reveal a dark truth. We all know that our lives are actually full of failure. Things that we wish we had done differently that we wouldn't share with others and we might readily lie about to make ourselves look better. That we might be even in maybe a lifestyle of pretending that things are better than they actually are. The Bible tells us that our lives are colored by sin. And if all we are is our life, that is actually really bad news. Because the Bible also speaks of a holy God And the biblical reality of hell is much more terrifying and searching than this place. More than having the truth revealed by fallen men, it's the eyes of God that look upon our lives. Right through our pretension to who we really are. His justices are perfect and eternal. And there's no hiding from this all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God of the universe. And friend, I just wonder if you've considered that this morning, that God knows you. He knows everything about you, everything about you, and he is holy. We're studying a letter in the Bible written by someone who's well acquainted with failure and sin. The apostle Peter is writing to elect exiles, we learned last week, believers who are scattered throughout what we would call today modern Turkey. And they're experiencing suffering and persecution. And we saw last week in these first two verses of the letter where Peter is reminding these believers of God's choice of them, choosing of them, their election. He's he's set them apart by his spirit and sprinkled them with the blood of Jesus Christ who shed for their sins. And then today we see Peter continuing just in a call to worship God and praise him for his great mercy. But Peter is not speaking theoretically. He has seen this mercy 
up front, close and personal. He betrayed Jesus in the flesh, publicly, three times, denied that he even knew him. But instead of of, of living out kind of a cursed life of a sinner, Peter's writing about living hope. He's writing with a tone of someone who was just rescued from drowning in the ocean, from the jaws of a lion. He writes as someone who has discovered that hope is found not in us, but beyond us. It's more than your life and nothing else, according to Peter. This is the focus of our text this morning. This is the the good news, friends, that I pray will, will culminate in worship for you. The main point of the sermon is that we would be self-forgetting and having our hearts and minds attention toward God in worship. Worship God for his saving work. That's what this text is about. Worship God for his saving work. There are no commands here in these verses, no exhortations. So if you're thinking about, well, how do I apply this? Peter's saying, Look around at the wonder of grace. Look around and understand God's rescue of you from sin and death and hell and and know this indescribable, unshakable reality of your salvation that is secured in heaven by God himself and worship. Worship God. Bless his holy name. Peter gives us what I'll I'll call four pillars to support and explain this thesis. Bless God. Worship God. They're listed there in your bulletin. If you want to follow along there, I'll tell you what they are. These four kind of pillars that hold up this, this, this desire and exhortation. I'm giving you an exhortation. Peter's just saying worshiping God to worship him. Number one, worship God because of the new birth. You see that in verse 3. Worship God because of the new birth. Number two, worship God because of our living hope. Also in verse 3. Number three, worship God because of our divine inheritance. Divine inheritance. Verse 4. And then finally, number four, worship God because we have eternal security. Eternal security. You see that in verse 5. This is not a time for you to read and listen merely for information. Uh, The goal of our time together is the goal of all of preaching, so we're still in a worship service, even though we're not singing, is that we would respond to the truth of God's word about him in worship. So we pray that he would be exalted in our hearts this morning. Let's think about, number one, the new birth. The new birth. And we're going to set the stage a little bit for for what Peter's doing. And, and really he's giving a, an extended opening to this letter. Uh, it runs really from where we are right now in verse 3 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. That's his introduction or opening to the letter. And throughout the, the, the section, Peter is just unpacking what life looks like for new covenant, the new covenant people of God. And he contrasts that by showing the transformation from the old covenant. And the old covenant people of God. He does it several times and in various ways. So, so for example, he begins this opening section with one long sentence in Greek. So verses 3 to 12 is one sentence in Greek. We're going to spend three weeks on that one sentence. But it functions as a doxology, a, a, a hymn, almost a hymn of praise. 
And, and there's lots of clauses and descriptions that go back to this important phrase there in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that phrase, blessed be God, blessed be the Lord God, is one that's repeated often in the Old Testament. It's even put in formal Hebrew, a Hebrew prayer called the 18 Blessings that would be received three times daily in the synagogue. But notice what Peter does. He, he takes this kind of old covenant terminology and transforms it into a distinctly Christian call to worship. You won't find anywhere in the Old Testament a description of God as the Father of Jesus Christ. In fact, speaking of God in this way is essentially what got Jesus killed. Uh, John five eighteen says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So just a subtle but I think vital point here about worship. True worship, true salvation is only found through the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is no salvation in the God of Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or Mormonism or the American God who is kind of the big man upstairs in a lot of country songs but disconnected from the cross and Jesus altogether. Worship that is not distinctly Christian worship is not worship at all. There is no way to understand much less worship God apart from Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. We don't get to define God in our own terms, having this kind of amorphous reality. You know, he is a very specific, personal God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And, and this work of salvation is what, what this text is pointing to. And it's what we want to turn to. And ask the question, why are we even here? Why are we coming today? Is it to worship? Is it to bless God, praise God? Is he worthy of our praise? Why is he worthy of our praise? Well, it's going to take an eternity to answer that question. But here we have kind of a summary of what it means to to know God and worship him. We should worship him because of his great mercy. He is a merciful God. All the descriptions, descriptions on this list that, that follow are rooted in his mercy. And Paul said to the Corinthians, he is the father of mercies. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you're wanting to kind of trace the cause for your salvation, it's right here. God showed you mercy according to his great mercy. Verse 3, if you're wanting to trace the hope that you have to be more than just what you are, it's the mercy of God that is on offer right now. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. And so there's an implicit reality that you have to understand that you deserve justice. You deserve his wrath because of your sin. And he is not giving it to you because he is merciful. Friend, do you know the God of mercy? According to his great mercy, Peter says, he has this next phrase. This is where we get into the new birth. Caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. Everyone in this room has been born. Correct? Yes. 
We have all been born the first time of the flesh. Not everyone in this room has been born again. Born of the Spirit. Being born again is a massive reality in the Bible. It is both necessary for salvation and completely out of our hands. Just let that sort of sink in. It is both necessary for our salvation and completely out of our hands. Let me give you two texts. You don't just believe me. Jesus said in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is necessary. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. But then he says in John 3, 8, again to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's out of our hands. Both necessary and out of our hands. So how are we born again? By God's great mercy. You see how needy we are as sinners. Well, how do you know that you're born again? Well, I would encourage you to study 1 John. One verse from 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? He died for your sins. Now, Peter's going to remind us later in chapter 1 that this reality is not Kind of God just zapping people with the Holy Spirit and they just sort of walk around and, oh, they're changed. It's actually connected to the Word of God. So 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And later he explains that Word of God as being the gospel that was preached to you. So we ought never disconnect regeneration, being born again from the Word of God. They come together. We're born again through the word as we hear the gospel. But it is a work of God's mercy alone. So if you're a Christian here this morning, be reminded that you are not the reason that you're saved. God the Father showed you great mercy. And he caused you to be born again. He caused the Spirit to blow And to give you a new heart that would understand and respond to that word, that gospel word that you heard, either as a child or as an adult or in a sermon or through a conversation. That's why you cared about it, is because he he opened your eyes through the Spirit. That's why you responded. It's in connection with that word that he brought you new life. We don't take credit and, and, and throw parties for how wonderful, what big a role we had in our physical birth. Oh man, I had a, it was my day. I had a lot to do with that. No, we, we had really nothing to do with that. We were born. Friends, it is the same with our spiritual birth. And so our response should be to bless God and praise his name for his great mercy in our lives and to walk then in humility, knowing that, that we are getting mercy when we deserve wrath. Friends, are you walking in that humility, that realization? 
And are you thinking about the, the, the millions of people who are walking apart from that realization? Are you praying for your non-Christian friends and neighbors and, and your own children, perhaps, to be born again? And are you doing everything in your, your ability to, to, to preach the word, that they, they might hear that word and respond in faith? Pray for us this week as a few of us will be in Alabama uh, praying and thinking with the, the Southern Baptist Convention about this very thing, about missionaries serving all over the world, preaching this good news. Pray that God would cause people to be born again as you share the good news with them. I pray that would happen even this morning, even in the remainder of this sermon. As the word is preached, God would do his regenerating work. We can bless God for his mercy in causing us to be born again. Next, Peter considers what we are born into. And here he's going to give kind of three fruits of regeneration. So born into this, here's three things that come with it. You're born to these three things. You're born to a living hope. You're born to an inheritance. You're born into salvation. Let's take the second one first, the living, a living hope. Number two, a living hope. Look at verse three again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, I think it's helpful if we don't just read these words sort of in a vacuum, but think of it about kind of through the lens of Peter's own experience. My Bible reading plan took me this week to John 20 and 21, the account of Jesus' resurrection. And Peter is all over the place. He had no hope. Imagine those, those days as he's, as he's between when Jesus died and was buried, as he hears that rooster crow in the morning and is reminded of his betrayal, reminded of his failure. Jesus was dead and he, lay, he, he had lied to him and denied him. And then here comes Mary announcing that Jesus is alive. And the tomb is empty and Peter sees the empty tomb. And then Jesus comes to Peter and loves Peter. They have, they have breakfast together with the other disciples. Jesus takes him on a walk, forgives him, sends him off and commissions him as an apostle. Peter's life is transformed He has a living hope. And this is what he wants us to be reminded of. Living signifies growth. A hope that is alive, that's strengthened over time. So perhaps you see this maybe um, as you you know some older believers who, who as they're nearing their time of departure from this world, their hope, this living hope has grown and grown strong over these years of seeing how putting hope in other things is useless. Perhaps as a sign of kind of spiritual maturity, how, how strong is that hope, that living hope in us? It's not a baseless hope. It's not hope against hope. It's not a good attitude in bad circumstances. It's not, I hope the Astros win the World Series so I can get my furniture free, a gallery furniture. This is grounded in a historical event. The, his, the most central event in all the universe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a living hope through that. Through the resurrection of Jesus. Because he is living, our hope is living. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, as the song says. But not only because he lives, but because we now live in him. 
that resurrection life lives in us and is promised to us. When we die, we too will be raised to newness of life. Friend, where is your hope? Is it a living hope? How do you think about life apart from the God that we're talking about here? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. How are you thinking about your life? Al Mohler wrote an article earlier this week kind of highlighting the basis of our hope. This is what he said. The basic dividing line, the most fundamental dividing line in all of human experience, past, present, and future, for time and eternity, is whether or not there is a God. That is the most fundamental issue. If there is no God, if there is no creator, if we are merely accidents, then every part of our life is an accident. And there's nothing after our death. It is simply a matter of atoms and molecules that were once together, and then they fall apart. The universe doesn't care. Now, he was commenting on a New York Times article that describes the pain of a mother who had abandoned her faith and then was working through grief at the loss of a child. She walked away from her faith and is talking about what it's like facing death and grief apart from God. This is what she said. Several years after leaving my religion, I felt sure I had encountered all the situations I might possibly need to get used to in my new life without God. What I had not prepared myself for, she wrote, was death. Grief without faith, which is to say death without hope. Our hope is not a baseless hope. It is rooted in an historical fact. It's not just that Christians are afraid to die. And so we've made up something that makes us feel better at night. There is a reality that that we are sinking our hopes in that God is who he says he is and he sent us kind of a seal of his, he authenticated his presence by raising his son from the dead. We can look to the empty tomb and, and the appearances of Jesus and the testimony of his disciples and be reminded that who God says he is, he is. Friend, there's no hope in this life apart from knowing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is your holy and just creator. He made you and I in his image to love him and obey him and enjoy him. And we have all in this room failed to do that. We have all sinned against him and we all deserve his righteous judgment for our sin. But in his great mercy, he has sent his son Jesus who was fully God and fully man, who therefore lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and then atoned for the death that we couldn't pay. He died in our place on a cross for our sins. He poured, God poured out his wrath that we deserved on his own son so that all those who would, who would believe in him, who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ would be forgiven would be saved from God's wrath, would be given new life. Friends, that was confirmed as Jesus rose from the dead the third day. That's what Peter's saying. Your living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He rose. And because of that reality, we have a living hope today. Not just today, but for our future. Hope is faith, one author said, in future tense. Friend, do you have that hope? Turn from your sins. Put your, put your trust in the risen King, Jesus Christ, and you will have a living, breathing, saving hope. 
Not only are we born again to this hope, this living hope, but we're also born into a divine inheritance. That's number three, a divine inheritance. You see that in verse four. So Peter is matching this kind of, we might call it a subjective reality, living hope, with an objective reality, inheritance. You have an inheritance coming to you that you can, you can see and think about. It follows just like being born physically places us into a family, therefore puts us in the kind of line as an heir of an inheritance, that being born spiritually into God's family makes you an heir of a divine inheritance. So let's see what he says there in verse 4. We are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this idea of an inheritance is not new to God's people. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's inheritance was the land that God had promised them. But Peter here seems to be understanding the inheritance no longer in terms of a physical land, in that sense, promised to Israel, but in terms of the end-time hope that belongs to believers. Now, it's not just a spiritual hope, because later in 2 Peter 3, Peter's going to talk about new heavens and new earth. But it's, it's a hope that transcends the land of, of Palestine to a heavenly kingdom, a, a permanent, protected, and pure inheritance for God's people. The author of Hebrews kind of shows this contrast as he's thinking about those that have list, were listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the inheritance of the land is, a, is like the shadow of the true inheritance of the new covenant people of God. And it's as if Peter cannot really get his mind around the reality to describe what this inheritance is, so he just describes what it isn't. It's not going to perish. It is imperishable, not able to be destroyed. It is undefiled, not polluted. It is unfading, not subject to any decay. Just contrast that with, with kind of the earthly land inheritance, which was often not kept for them, was taken from them in exile, later by Roman occupation. Even when they possessed it, the people of Israel, it produced things that decayed, rewards that faded away. This land was repeatedly defiled by sin. As one author says, the believer's inheritance, on the other hand, is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is a compound of immortality and purity and beauty. Brother, sister, anything that you would put your hopes in, in this world, will perish. It is somehow defiled, either by your sinful motives, my sinful motives, or by just the virtue of being finite. It will fade, and so will we. If you're ultimately hoping in something of this world, you will ultimately be disappointed. Look to your heavenly inheritance and praise God for it. You may have no earthly inheritance. Your earthly inheritance may be squandered. It may go to someone else. 
you may not leave much of inheritance to your family. Not because you're, you're, you're lazy or, or, or just not doing what you need to do, but through God's providence, you just, it's not going to happen. You may even lose your place in your family inheritance because of your allegiance to Jesus. Perhaps that's the, the, the application that many of Peter's readers are thinking through. I'm kicked out of my family because I'm associated with this new family. Peter's saying, don't look to what is seen. That's transient. Look to what is unseen, that is eternal. Don't store up treasures on earth, but in heaven, where there is an ironclad guarantee, an inheritance that's being kept, noticed by God, for you. And this inheritance is for you. Are you looking to it? It's being kept by God. But it would be one thing to know that we have this inheritance that's kept for us, but then on our way to it, we don't quite make it. Our, our faith folds. Well, not only is it being kept for us, but we are being kept for it. We are being kept for God. That's the last pillar of praise that we'll consider this morning. Number four, we have eternal security. Eternal security. Peter addresses those two fears that we have of making it to the end. So our inheritance is going to be gone if we get there. No, God's going to keep it himself. And two, if we don't make it to receive it. What if we don't make it? What if our faith fails? Verse five. This this is kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the point here is that believers have eternal security and certainty that they will make it to the end. Because it's God's power, right, that, that, that keeps us. That word is guarded uh, or shielded. It's used most often in military context, no surprise there. So uh, the people who agreed uh, with the 10 unfaithful spies of Israel decided that the treasures of Canaan were so strongly guarded, they couldn't be taken away. Same word, guarded, can't be taken away. This word can also mean kept from escaping. You can be guarded that that you can't run away from it. So you can't lose it by by fleeing from it yourself. So God is, is preserving believers from escaping out of his kingdom and is protecting them also from outside attacks. Oh, beloved, I hope that encourages you this morning that you're being kept by the power of God, safe and secure by his almighty hand. You can have confidence in your salvation because you're guarded by his power, not your power, not your performance. But then notice the means for which you are kept and guarded. It's sort of an unexpected balance that this text has for us. It's not guarding angels with with heavenly chariots and tanks. That, that guards us. It's not guarding us from suffering. Not, not, not saying, I'll protect you from bad things happening to you. No, no, we know that's not true. Just by knowing the audience of 1 Peter and by just living in this world. No, God's power works through faith to guard us. He guards us through our faith. So the implication is that God's power sustains and empowers our faith 
but we must believe. We must endure in our faith, knowing that it's God's power that's keeping us believing every day. Some of you and maybe me get nervous when you start thinking about eternal security of the believer because we have that sort of stereotype example of the person who, who, who prays a prayer when they're young that they want to follow Jesus and they live a life that is of the world and not of Jesus, but they keep looking back to that time when they said, well, I said those words and so that's what matters. But just notice how the guarding works. It, God is guarding us through a sustained, persevering faith that continues on, that endures to the end. And I say end because just the way Peter uses the word salvation there, it seems parallel, doesn't it, to inheritance. This, so this inheritance is kept for us in heaven until the day when we receive it. And salvation, he says, is ready now, but it's ready to be revealed in the last time. That's not typically how we talk about salvation, is it? We talk about it always in the present tense. But here it's not used of kind of past justification or even present sanctification, but of future full possession of salvation. All of the blessings of our redemption realized totally, the the total fulfillment of our salvation. It is already prepared, it is ready. It's okay to say that you can describe yourself as being saved if you're trusting in Christ. But it will fully be revealed on the last day. Paul says something similar in Romans 13, 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So he's speaking of a final salvation. A final state of realizing their whole full-orbed reality of being redeemed by the grace of God. And friends, just just think about this and stand back and, and I hope that you would be encouraged that if God is the one guarding us by his power until that final day, we can conclude and have security that we will be saved. This rests on God's power and God's power is working through our faith. So are you believing this morning? Are you trusting and putting your faith in God's gracious work for you in Christ? Does that encourage you? That you woke up this morning believing that this is all true? That your hope is in Christ? That ought to give you and bring you security and safety that you should cling to when doubts arise, when when circumstances press in. You can bless God and know that he's guarding you and that, that you're called to trust him even through difficulty, even through suffering. No matter what comes, you can rest in God's power. You can put your trust in him and praise him for his goodness to us. Is there anything keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus this morning? Is something hindering that? Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's thinking that that Jesus couldn't possibly accept me. Maybe it's simply your unbelief. Friend, look to Jesus. Look to this promise and trust in God's power, God's grace through the gospel that he will empower, he will sustain your faith. He will hold you fast. Faith is in fact a gift from God. 
that he will sustain. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Beloved, he means to fortify us with this truth. Strengthen us. That we would persist in our believing and our hoping and our praying until that day when we finally receive the inheritance promise, the final salvation kept for us when we meet face to face and realize that he is our treasure. He is our salvation. He is our inheritance. He is our reward. With the psalmist in Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I I hope that is your hope this morning. I hope it's not your life and nothing else. I hope you have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that no one can take away from you, that will never fade, that will never perish, that is kept in heaven for you. That sad New York Times article described the situation of being hopeless as this mother thought through the implications of abandoning her faith. Again, she says, the question of my son's death The mystery of it, why he vanished, remains without answer. And so I ask the questions of life. What force grew this child in me? How did those limbs form themselves from nothing inside of me? Why did I have the power to make him but not to bring him back? Why are the things he saw on this planet so beautiful? Why did his eyes look at me the way that they did? Where did this love come from? And such painful questions. But the Bible gives us an answer, a clear answer and clear hope, a living hope. It's anchored in the past. Jesus rose. It remains in the present. Jesus lives. And it is completed, will be completed in the future. Jesus is coming. And if you share in that hope this morning, how can we not join Peter in worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? I'll pray that you would do that. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and you do good. And this passage is such a stunningly clear example of that. Help us to respond rightly, Lord, even now as we, as we sing, as we think through the realities of, if we know you, of your grace in our life and your mercy. Lord, help us to show mercy to others in the way in which you've shown mercy to us. And Lord, I pray that you would bring life to someone this, this morning, someone who doesn't know you. He would open their eyes to the glory of Christ and that this would matter to them where perhaps never before has it mattered and their life would be transformed. We pray you would do this, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. We bless you and worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.